Good morning. Today's scripture passage, we have two passages, one from Jeremiah 22, verses 1 to 5, and one from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 to 7. Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. And reading from Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So, how many of you have ever owned a fish? Oh, lots of people. Oh, okay, it's, so it's the like common thing. So this is, you'll probably just, you can tune out for the rest of this talk. No. Now, I had a fish when I was a kid, and uh, oh, I had fish, multiple fish when I was a kid, one at a time, though. And if I recall, they usually didn't last very long. But I do remember one fish that was quite hardy. And I remember uh, this fish just kept on living no matter how poorly I maintained the fish bowl. Um, and it's not that I was trying to make the fish suffer, but that's, you know, it's hardly a good excuse. Uh, negligence because of ignorance has been a common justification for injustice throughout the centuries by the masses, even for 10-year-old boys and their negligent care for fish. Now, my daughter, Nev, who is 10, has taken up the hobby of fish keeping. Like me, she started with one fish in a fish bowl and then progressed to a few. And then for the past couple of years, she's had this nice 10-gallon tank, you know, with all the filters and the heaters and, and the bubblers and everything. Next, it's like next level above anything that I ever did. And it's been interesting as an adult... <laughs> who had fish as a kid, to finally learn proper care for fish. Everything like you have to have the right balance of bacteria, otherwise the fish will get sick. You need to maintain a certain temperature, and the temperature will be different depending on what kind of fish you have. So you have to have fish that can coexist in the similar types of water. 
You need certain kind of light because the wrong kinds of light or the lack of light or too much light can cause problems. You need filters that filter certain things out of the water but lets other things grow. And even with all of this, in order to maintain the right balance of bacteria and nitrates and ammonia, you need to take out some of the old water on a regular basis and add new water. But the new water has to have already been treated with different types of water treatment. I, I mean, I didn't take science in school, um, but uh, I, I would have, I probably could have used a degree in, I don't know, in something to help me with this. It's way more than I ever anticipated. And of course, there are certain kinds of water that different fish can live in. And so even say you have a fresh water tank, not every kind of freshwater fish can live in the freshwater tank with other freshwater fish. Depends on what kind of fish you have. Some fish will attack others. Some need different temperatures, food sources. Not to mention the math that you need to determine how many of what kind of fish that you can have in a particular type of tank. It's crazy. Did you know, and this is something I should have known as a kid. It's not, science, it's not rocket science or aquatic science or whatever the word is. Do you know that when you buy a new fish to add to the tank, you know, they give it to you in a plastic bag. With water, of course. And what you're supposed to do is put the bag in the water for a while so that the water in the bag that the fish is in will slowly change to the temperature of the water in the tank. Now, all these hands that went up, I'm sure you all knew this, and I just was the only one who, was, who didn't. And so what it does is it allows the fish to adjust to the temperature of the water and then when you gently pour the bag into the water with the fish, the fish doesn't have this like big sudden shock, although it still needs to adjust to the ammonia and the nitrates and, and the bacteria and all that stuff. When I was a kid, I had no idea. I would just fill a fish bowl with tap water and plop, dump the fish in, and let it kind of fend for itself. I mean... What fish doesn't love a good old polar bear dip into chlorine and fluoride-filled tap water, right? That was a joke, of course. But So now let's picture, you're like, probably, what is going on with this fish thing? But just stick with me. So picture this, uh, we have this fish tank, and let's say uh, there's like, you know, a couple different types of fish. There's uh, two types of fish that are in groups or schools, because there's certain fish you can't just buy one of, because they need to be in society, so you've got you know, five or six of each of these two types of fish, these social school fish that hang out. Of course, they just hang out with their own kind, just like humans. So you have these two groups of five or six, and then perhaps you know, a couple of odd fish, mostly loners that kind of mind their own business, except when it's feeding time. And from the perspective of probably any of these fish, they are aware of things like feeding time, so Nev's fish, as soon as you open the little thing and they, they just all scurry, well, there's some that scurry to the top and then there's some that stay on the bottom waiting, uh, but they all get excited. So they're aware of feeding time and they're aware of social order of how the tank works, which fish to stay away from, especially if you miss a feeding, which fish are going to be more likely to bite your tail than the others. But the last thing that the comfortable fish in the water notices is the water. Fish just take the water that they swim in for granted. Unless, of course, they find themselves out of the water in open air, then all of a sudden they're very aware of water. 
But while they're in the water, they are unaware of the water. It's simply, it is what is normal and what is natural. The water works for them and they have no need to reflect on it. There's no need to be aware of the water in order for them to thrive because the way the water is, especially if the owner is doing a good job, is being maintained for the flourishing of their own kind. The flourishing of themselves and their schoolmates and even the flourishing of the, the loner that hides out in the bottom corner. The water they swim in is normal for them and so they do not even notice it. And when we take this idea of the normal that is all around and we apply it to humans, this is what we call normativity. Normativity is the water that we swim in. The things which are, we are completely unaware of just because it's normal. And unless we actually take time to step back and intentionally pay attention to it, intentionally pay attention, kind of could have worded, worded better. better. <laughs> like fish with water, we don't actually see normativity unless we are intentional to look for it. And so when we talk about normativity in Canada, the water that is around us, that the majority of those who have been enculturated into Canadian systems and cultures, we would say that's just how it is. If you're new to Canada, there are probably things that have shocked you about that's just how it is as you are adjusting to what it is to be here. Things that the water does not seem natural to you, but to everyone around is just saying, well, that's just how it is. However, I think that the most any time that we say that's just how it is, Chances are there's something wrong with how things are. Can you think of a time where you said, oh, well, that's just how it is, that it was a positive thing? As followers of Jesus, I think oftentimes a more biblical response than just that's just how it is would be to say that's not how it should be. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let's step back for a moment. Now, over the past month together, we have been focusing our hearts and our minds on what it means that God has called us as followers of Jesus to be a kaleidoscope community. Uh, kaleidoscope, if you're not familiar, uh, this is a still image of it, is this kind of moving patterns of reflected light uh, and color. It's beautiful in that all these differences and distinctions are together, not losing their distinction, but making beautiful uh, beauty in the diversity uh, of uh, the, in the diversity. Uh, so we have been looking at what it means to be a people who live in unity amongst our diversity in our differences. That we as a church, God's gathered people, our differences are not liabilities or hindrances, but that our diversity is an intentional gift of God to make us beautifully reflect the nature and character of God. Last week, Sam challenged us to keep at the very center of our faith and our relationships the core biblical doctrine of love. That the core doctrine of all doctrines where love is not simply an idea or an emotion, but that love is a rugged commitment and it is the very nature of who God is. 
And like a labyrinth, now are you familiar with the labyrinth? And I don't, I don't mean the David Bowie movie. For those who aren't, a labyrinth is not actually a maze in which you can get lost. That is a completely false understanding of a labyrinth. A labyrinth is a pathway that, well, it does, it weaves in and out and, and back and forth. It always leads you surely to the center. If you keep going, you will not get lost. You can't get lost. There's only one path. It always takes you to the center. In Christian spirituality, a labyrinth can be used as an image of the journey inwards to the center where you can find God's heart. And then from that center, you go back out into the world, discovering what it means to live in the world, but carrying with you that center of God's heart. So, like a labyrinth, last week Sam brought us into the center of God. Namely, that God is love. And now carrying that simple but complex truth, today we weave our way back out to discover what it looks like to live out that core truth of who God is. And in the Bible, one of the central themes, if not the central theme of living out God is love is what we today call social justice. And it's interesting because that phrase for some of us will make us go, Ugh, right? And for others will be like, yeah, preach it. And some of us will be like in the middle somewhere. But stick with me. In the Bible, um, Sorry, so the central theme of social justice, God's heart for the broken, the oppressed, the outcast, the poor, the hungry. In other words, God's heart for those on the margins. Now, throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that talks about the Jewish uh, Israelites uh, community before Jesus was born, and then the New Testament, which is from Jesus' uh, life uh, and then kind of forward for uh, a few decades. We see God is calling his people to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. Those who are on the edges of society and whom culture would treat as unimportant and expendable. And many times in the Old Testament, the words for righteousness and justice are paired together. As Anne read for us, uh, the prophet Jeremiah spoke these words to the king of God's people. This is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. This language is throughout the Old Testament. Do what is just and right. Justice and righteousness. Now the words justice and righteousness in Hebrew, Hebrew is the original language that the Bible, that this part of the Bible was in. The words for justice and righteousness are actually good examples of the impact of normativity. How what we assume to be normal in our culture or our circles, what we've inherited from those before us, narrows our vision to only see through that normative lens. Now, a year ago, and the reason that I'm actually wearing a tucked-in shirt today, 
A year ago, our beloved friend and spring gardener, uh, she was a member for, um, for almost 50 years, uh, Margaret Irwin, passed away about a year ago. And as you may know, we're having a memorial for her today because we couldn't last year. Uh, that's at 11.45, so if you want to join us, please uh, stick around. She loved the translation of the Bible called the King James Version because of its beauty, of its language. Now, Margaret was a person who really believed in speaking for what's right. Uh, anyone who knew her knew she was, she was a loving, gracious, but strong person about what was right to her. Uh, and there's nothing more important to her than truth and knowing God. So I think I honor her when I say this, but she would also be a little bit mad at me uh, too. But, uh, so forgive me, Margaret, not that you're paying attention to me right now. You've got better things to do. The King James Bible translators made a normative, they made normative, so they made normal a dangerous and unjust reading of Scripture. Now, before I go on, if you are a King James fan, don't take this too personally. Every English translation of the Bible has places where human translators inserted their own perspectives in negative ways. If you want to talk, if you want to slam all the translations together, give me a call. I, I enjoy nitpicking things. But each translation also brings something beautiful uh, as well. So don't take it personally. This, is, this type of thing happens in all translations. But this is a particular problem with the King James so King James isn't just a Bible, it was a person. King James VI of England commissioned the translating the Bible into English. But because he was king, he wanted the translation to reflect well on him and the monarchy in general. And so places where the Bible spoke against kings treating their people in certain ways, the King James's translators chose language that would not challenge the king's right to, well, quite frankly, would not challenge the king's right to be unjust towards his people. And so they intentionally chose to translate it in a way that would allow the king to do what kings do. For example, here in Jeremiah 22, instead of saying, do what is just and right, which the NIV says, King James Version says, execute ye judgment. Execute ye judgment and righteousness. And so the verse became about the monarchy's right to judge in a court of law and to have an inwardly pious righteousness, an individual's inward pious righteousness and the right to judge the people. But this is not even remotely what justice and righteousness in the Bible means. As Christopher Wright, his Old Testament scholar, says, the word for justice in the Old Testament actually means to put things right, to intervene in a situation that is wrong, oppressive, or out of control, to confront wrongdoers, to vindicate and deliver those who have been wronged, to fight against those who exploit others, to take up the cause of the weak. The word is meant to go against kings. And the King James translation made it into a word that worked in king's favor. And the word righteousness, similar, similarly, it means to live rightly, to do the right thing, 
But it isn't about an individual doing the right thing. It is a social word. In the Hebrew, it is a social word. Righteousness is more accurately defined as doing right by others. Not doing the right thing for yourself or by yourself, but doing the right thing by others in the community. And adding to this, in Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, when two words are put together as a couplet, they are done so to give a single complex idea, which we have similar things in English. So as is in the case here, to do what is right and just is not to say, do what is right and also do what is just. It is actually to say, to do what both words mean together. To do righteous justice or to do just righteousness. Again, Christopher Wright says, the nearest expression in English to this double word phrase of justice and righteousness is social justice. Social, doing right by others in the community and justice, caring for the oppressed, standing up, uh, doing what is right and standing up for those who are oppressed or discriminated against. If you want to talk about God's call to justice and righteousness, it is social justice. Now, don't get me wrong. For those who go to social justice, it's usually because you think, it's usually because we've seen times where the church has thrown out uh, evangelism, thrown out sharing the story of God. And I'm not talking about throwing out the story of God. I'm talking about social justice is in the center of the story of God. And we can't share the story of God without living out just righteousness or righteous justice. It is to do right by those who are oppressed and marginalized. Psalm 33, 5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. To break away from the false narrative which the King King James translation gave us, which was unjustly twisted in order to legitimize the power of a human king, the Lord loves righteousness and justice properly translated into present-day English is to say that the Lord loves social justice in our contemporary English. The call of Jeremiah and the call throughout the Old and New Testaments is for the people in places of power, the people who control normativity, the people who have inherited the power from previous normativity and continue it on to today. That's who this call is to. But it is also to the people who have just benefit from normativity, even if they don't see that they are participating in it because it is just the water that they swim in. And these prophets are calling those who benefit from normativity or have power in it to give up that power and that normativity in order to create a new normal where those who are on the margins, those who are oppressed and outsiders and the poor and excluded and discriminated against, for them to be the center of what is normative and those with power to be on the edges. So let's go back to that fish tank. Like Jeremiah 22, where we were meant to be, the Jeremiah 22, which was meant to be subversive against the powers that be, 
through manipulated translations, it actually played a role in creating and maintaining unjust understandings of the relationship between power and righteousness. We have inherited, that is the water in which Christians have swum ever since, well, not ever since King James translation. The King James translation and understanding was an inherent understanding of it from the normativity in which it received. And this is still the water in which we in Christian circles swim is this misunderstanding of what it means to be just and righteous. The water we swim in has prioritized judgment but minimized justice. Now, we often don't see it, but it is all around us, particularly in North American Christian culture. The water we swim in is filtered and maintained for the flourishing of those in the center. It is what is normal for those in the center, but for those not in the center, the water that we swim in is struggle and poverty and discrimination and dehumanization. And while these waters provide security and nourishment and stability for the normative majority, many have lived generation after generation in waters that work against their flourishing and cause illness and injury. And of course, when new fish are added to the water, and I think if, if you're following the kind of metaphor, anyone who is an immigrant or a refugee, when new fish are in, added into the waters of Canadian normativity, no matter how impure or filled with bacteria of unrighteous injustice the waters may be, they are forced to end either adapt and learn to live in the center, to learn to look like the rest of the normative culture, or they languish in a life of struggle and marginalization, or they go the belly up, which is an expression for when fish die, they float upside down. As you know, for our series, or some of you may know, we've been following themes in this book, a Beautiful Community by Erwin Ince Jr., uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there, um, but as I've pointed out before, there's also a few places where we see things differently. One such place is where, in this week's chapter, he writes about those in the margins, those who are on the receiving end of public injustice and injustices in the church. And his list is short, and I quote, the people who are suffering public, receiving end of public injustice to him are black and brown people, period. Which he's absolutely right, and black and brown people, but he doesn't seem to see the racial discrimination against Latinx or Asian or any other ethnic group. He doesn't see them as actual injustices in the states that need to be dealt with in the church. Interestingly, the normativity of his particular brand of American Christian evangelicalism, he doesn't see that there is injustice towards women. It's nowhere on his radar, anywhere in the book, that women, that injustices are towards women is all through American evangelicalism in his tradition. While advocating to challenge white normativity, he's unaware of his participation in patriarchal normativity. 
Likewise, he doesn't see public injustice against the LGBTQ, <laughs> LGBTQ plus community because of his evangelical normativity. He doesn't see injustices towards those with disability. I mean, ableism is a huge area of injustice in North American culture, uh, but especially in American evangelicalism. Did you know that when the American Disabilities Act was created, uh, now the American Disability Act are regulations to make sure that those with dis disabilities were guaranteed equal access and protection from discrimination. When the American Disabilities Act was created, evangelical Christians lobbied for the right to not have to honor the Disabilities Act. Mostly because it would cost them too much money to make their buildings accessible. So the people are supposed to be known for loving like Jesus are fighting against having to respect disabled people and, to, and they want to keep the right to discriminate against disabled people. And this is just one, this is just one example. Their examples abound in all of those areas of normativity. And even those of us like Ince who spend a lot of time thinking and writing about normativity, we often only see where we ourselves are marginalized or discriminated against. But then we swim happily in comfort of our cultural normativity. When we swim happily in the comfort of cultural normativity, we're blind to it. So for Ince, he swims happily in patri patriarchal normativity, and so he's blind to the reality that it is a form of oppression. We all, everyone in this room, has blind spots of what we think should, is normal. And we just don't see it, even though we participate and accept injustice. Not out of bad intent, not out of evil hearts, but just because it's just the water we swim in. It's what we, we just, it's just normal, so we, don't, we haven't reflected on it. We need to do the work of opening our eyes to our blind spots, to invest ourselves educationally and relationally with those who have differences than us. Now, last week, Sam challenged us for how it is important for us to befriend one another who are different from us, to befriend one another within this fish tank, to spend time together, to look out for one another, to affirm one another's dignity and worth, to develop reciprocal relationships of love and friendship with one another. I'm not going to go into that because he spent a Sunday on it. So if, that, if you're interested, check it out. However, this alone is not enough. It's not enough just to make friends with those who are different. And this is a place where I think a lot of racial reconciliation movement, particularly in churches, has fallen short. This is all we do is push for friendship. Let's just, let's just be together and we'll stop there. As Shaniqua, it's, it's not enough for fish that thrive in waters of normativity simply to surround and to be friends with fish that are not flourishing. We must also be working to change the very water in which we swim. As Chenika Walker Barnes says in her book, I bring the voices of my people. It is not enough to run toward one another in friendship, but we also must run alongside of one another. 
With solidarity, it is not only important that we come together, but it matters how we come together. And this means changing the water. It means changing systems. And even if that means that the waters will no longer be comfortable for us, no, let me rephrase that, it will mean that the waters we swim in will be less comfortable for us. But unless those in the center are willing to swim to the edges so that the center can be remade anew, we will never see the flourishing of all people together, which is the goal of Christ's kingdom. Again, Walker Barnes writes, with solidarity, so walking together, not just toward one another, walking together, the privileged... And by privilege, she doesn't just mean those who are financially rich. She means those who sit comfortably in normative culture. The privileged make an outward movement. In racial reconciliation, this means white people must move from the center to the margins. They move toward the margins because it's the only way to decenter themselves and thus de-idolize themselves. And it is only by being on the margins that the oppressor and the oppressed can work together to deconstruct the center. There is a cost to righteous justice. There's a cost to living God's love in the world. The water of normativity in which we swim is such that the cost is almost completely, right now, the cost is completely on those in the margins and the edges. But that's just how it is, is not an acceptable response. Definitely not an acceptable response for the church. It should not be this way. And I think God says to us, not only should it not be this way, but it cannot continue this way. As followers of Jesus, those who flourish in Canada's current normativity need to be willing to count the cost. As Ince points out, how we live as a church community, we need to be willing to ask, what does it cost for you to be here? If it's just really comfortable for all of us to be here, then we're probably not doing something right. What does it cost for you to be here? He writes, cultivating beautiful community is not cheap because it is also about discipleship. It will cost you your preferences. To put it another way, you will be by necessity, you will by necessity have to die to self for the sake of extending grace to your diverse neighbors. Those of us in the normative, those of us who are privileged, need to be willing to break out of our comfort zones, to give up our preferences. We need to be willing to open, be open-minded, with eyes open to seeing the water we swim in and be willing to adjust our norms, to advocate and participate in change of systems and patterns. And this is not a political call, this is a righteous call. This is the call that God has placed on all of us to not justify the ways of the world and the ways of kings, but to fight against it. Those with leadership, with power and resources, we need to use our influence for change, 
to make sure the voices of those on the margins are heard and are valued. Using influence not just to become friends, but to advocate for the flourishing of all people. And for those of us on the margins, the minorities, who are on the receiving end of injustice of Canadian normativity, we in the church, we need to hear your voice. It is your voice, not the voices of those in the center that needs to be heard that will allow us and enable us to construct a new center that is the reflective of God's kingdom. And this is our part of living out God's loving call to social justice. Just righteousness, righteous justice. This is our part in giving God the space to holistically unify us with one mind and one voice so that we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To truly accept one another as Christ has accepted us, laying aside our rights to normativity so that a new normal can come to be. Where the weak are made strong, those on the margins become the center, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is the kingdom of God. Amen.